0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Desert Strike Return to the Gulf, an isometric perspective helicopter action title developed and published by Electronic Arts and released for the Sega Genesis in 1992, with numerous ports and conversions following. We're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 58. I'm excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at and we have a discord server the link is in the show notes discord is probably the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast we do a ton of cool things out on discord we have a lot of fun and we also do a weekly gaming challenge this weekend's challenge was all about spooky adventure games and we did have a few people that participated ISO got 35 more points this weekend, most of them before Saturday morning, to bring his total up to 152 points. He remains in first place. Bookie Gnu added two points to his total. That brings him up to 60 points and second place. I remain in third place with 59 points. I still need to get one point from the October Monthly Challenge before we hit November. Fourth place, Rich Senewald got five additional points. He now has 45 points. I am the Dizzle didn't participate this past weekend. He was addicted to Alan Wake too. So he stays in fifth place with 19 points and left-handed guitarist added six points to his total. That brings his total all the way to 15 points. Good for sixth place. So far, the only way to get involved in this weekly gaming challenge is to actually come out on discord and play. And I do want to mention that our November set of games, the November monthly challenge is going to be opening up later this week. The theme for November is all about shareware classics. And once again, this is going to be a community driven set of challenges. So if you want to contribute your own challenge to the November set of games and the November set of challenges, get out there to discord links in the show notes, like I said, and submit your challenge and play along. It really is a lot of fun. I should also mention that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. We have an exclusive Patreon podcast that comes out every other week. We have some exclusive blog posts to channel out on Discord. So if that sounds like a good time, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. I also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon members. These are the Patreon community members that are contributing at the Pantheon level. They are iso rich centerwald and david morton thank you guys for supporting the show and thank you all for supporting the show whether it's monetarily or by listening on a regular basis i truly do appreciate the support for anyone who may be new welcome i just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because for the most part every single episode follows a very similar format and structure We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. How was the game made? Why was the game made? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign every game a numerical ranking or a bunch of stars or anything like that. But we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 years ago? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You owe it to yourself to go out and play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our golden oldies. These are still really good games, I still highly recommend them, especially if you've enjoyed the game in the past, or you have nostalgia for the genre, or enjoy the genre, by all means, go for it, you will not be disappointed. They are not quite Pantheon level, but they are still really good experiences, and I still highly encourage you all to play them today. Beyond our golden oldies, we reach the mediocre mentions. These are where we start getting into the games that I cannot recommend to the broader population. They either aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, give it a go, but I cannot recommend these games to the broader population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend any anyone play these titles today they have either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with with that out of the way we're going to start talking about the game of the day that is desert strike Desert Strike Return to the Gulf is an isometric perspective helicopter action title developed and published by Electronic Arts and released for the Sega Genesis in 1992, with a bunch of ports and conversions following that initial release. Before we can talk about Desert Strike, we have to dive back into history, and specifically the mid-1960s into the early 70s, which is when a man named Mike Poussin was in the midst of the educational equivalent of a boss gauntlet. Posen was attending the University of California, Berkeley, where he would challenge himself with completing bachelor's, master's, and PhD studies in mechanical engineering, and because that wasn't enough, also pursuing an additional master's degree in electrical engineering and computer science. Over a period of 10 years, he did in fact complete all of those degree programs, while also teaching himself FORTRAN, a very early computer programming language, which he used to create a couple of simple programs, which he ended up enjoying. With that educational foundation firmly established, he had to figure out what he wanted to do now that he was effectively done with formal education. Now, As we've talked about a number of times during prior episodes of this podcast, the mid-70s was a period of time where technological advancement was rapidly accelerating, with the popularization of arcades as a social destination, the insertion of video game consoles into the home, and the proliferation of computer technology as something that consumers, not just businesses, would be able to utilize in their day-to-day lives. Posen, like many individuals with similar engineering and computer science backgrounds, wanted to transfer his educational learning into something that would allow him to apply his technological know-how on something worthwhile, which is why he decided to join the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory in 1974. The Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, for those who may not be aware, originated as a radiation research laboratory that was founded at the University of California in 1952, and over the years would become one of the preeminent nuclear weapon development labs in the world, with a number of experimental weapons, warheads, and missiles developed for and delivered to the United States military. This weapon development was especially prominent during the Cold War era, when the Soviet Union and the United States were in a constant competition to develop technology and weapons that would one-up one another. When Posen joined the lab in 1974, he was tasked with developing computer systems for use in environmental testing, which was an area of increasing importance at the lab, considering the focus of the time on nuclear weapons and related environmental impacts. Putting his computer, electrical, and mechanical knowledge to use, Posen would continue working at the lab for several years, until he decided in 1977 to break away and form his own company focused on developing software for the personal computer market. Before we continue, though, we need to take a step back and talk about the personal computer market in 1977, and specifically, what I mean when I say personal computer market. As many likely know, computers as a concept have existed for a long time, though for many years they were designed to only be used by large companies, educational institutions, and other organizations where their computational power could be put to good use. Early computers were gargantuan machines that oftentimes took up entire rooms in large buildings, which, as you might expect, didn't exactly endear them to being used in homes. It's not like gigantic computer room with its own power, ventilation, and cooling was common on many homebuyer must-have lists of amenities when shopping around for a new house. Computers were hugely impactful across a number of industries, they just hadn't made their way into the home yet. All of that would change in 1977, when the first true personal computers would be released on the market, those being the Apple II, the Tandy Radio Shack TRS-80, and the Commodore Personal Electronic Transactor, or PET. These machines, while primitive by modern standards, were the first efforts in miniaturizing computer technology and creating something that could actually be used in someone's home without needing dedicated floor space to store and maintain the machine. So, 1977 was effectively the start of the personal computer market, which is to say, when Mike Posen decided to leave his job at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory and create his own company focused on developing software for personal computers, this was a major risk. Sure, the potential was there, and Posen had had some success in developing and selling software via magazine ads while he was still working at the lab, but there was really no guarantee that the personal computer market would take off. Posen was in uncharted waters, and he knew he would need to do something special to turn his pursuit into a successful business. Now, I know this podcast is primarily focused on classic gaming, but the fact is, back at the advent of the personal computer market, the focus was squarely on productivity as opposed to fun. When you bought a shiny new Apple II, you were likely going to use it to either improve your productivity or to manage some aspect of your life you were not buying a computer to play games. Obviously, that would all change relatively quickly, but it'd still be several years before games would become more prevalent on computers in the home. Posen's software company would focus on the productivity market exclusively, and would, in fact, become a relatively major player in the productivity software world. Over a seven-year period, his company would churn out a number of software titles, including the first project management software for personal computers named Milestone, one of the first task management software packages called Visa Schedule, and Datebook, which helped individuals manage personal appointments. While there's not a ton of info on these early computer programs, they ended up doing some solid business, so much so that bigger companies were starting to take notice, with one of those companies being none other than Electronic Arts. Nowadays, Electronic Arts is portrayed by many as a soulless corporate behemoth that cares more about bottom line dollars than consumer interests, but back in the early 80s, Electronic Arts was actually a company focused on creating innovative games where creators and developers were celebrated. Its founder, Trip Hawkins, envisioned a company that would one day be the biggest, most advanced software development studio in the world. And to help him try to reach that goal, he began courting a number of different developers and companies, seeking out acquisitions where possible, while in other instances, simply poaching quality employees from other established companies. In 1984, Electronic Arts was two years old, and while its focus had been squarely on the video and computer game market, it began to see some competitors strike out in other directions, some of which were hugely successful. Specifically, Trip Hawkins noticed how successful fellow publisher Broderbund was with the release of the computer productivity application The Print Shop, and he thought it might make sense for electronic arts to expand beyond games and enter the productivity market. Which is why, in 1984, Mike Posen's company fell squarely in Electronic Arts' crosshairs, and EA would end up acquiring Posen's company and releasing the first personal information management software, entitled Get Organized, shortly after the acquisition. While Get Organized was an innovative piece of software, especially for the time, it ultimately failed to garner any significant interest in the market so Electronic Arts quickly reverted back to their games-only focus, while Mike Posan went off to create a brand new company, Granite Bay Software, while still acting as an EA partner for developing new software. In yet another first, Posan and Granite Bay Software would be asked to develop a product called Deluxe Video, which was marketed as the first desktop video editing software available for personal computers. Granite Bay Software would develop multiple versions of that software, With EA acting as the publisher, similar to how they published the incredibly popular image editing software Deluxe Paint, which was a program that basically became synonymous with computer graphics in the 80s and 90s. Seriously, if you ever look up some of the more technical aspects of the games created during this time frame, almost all of them used Deluxe Paint for their graphics needs. Posen's work on deluxe video was meant to be a complementary package to deluxe paint, albeit for video editing as opposed to direct graphics creation and manipulation, and similar to deluxe paint, was primarily marketed for Amiga computer users. Posen's company was generating moderate but not blockbuster sales for EA, especially in comparison to many of Electronic Arts' game publishing deals they had brokered. But despite those less-than-stellar sales the leadership team at EA recognized that Posen himself was an insanely talented developer, as he had proven throughout his career up to that point. One day, Trip Hawkins, who like we had mentioned earlier, was the founder of Electronic Arts, came to Posen with a request. He wanted Posen to try to apply his talents to creating a game, as opposed to limiting himself to just productivity software. Hawkins was a proponent of the work Granite Bay Software had been doing up to this point, but with EA's primary focus being the development and publishing of video and computer games, Hawkins was curious what someone like Prosan would do if given the opportunity to break into the games industry. There was only one problem. For all of Prosan's technical know-how and expertise, he was never really a gamer. So, when Hawkins asked Prosan to try to create a game, he didn't really know what kind of game or experience would be best to work on. Luckily for Prosan though, Hawkins didn't come forward with a blank slate. He already had a concept in mind for a potential title. Hawkins, like many other gamers and software developers in the 1980s, had been a huge fan of a previously released helicopter rescue title called Choplifter, and he wanted to see if Posehn would be able to create a title in a similar vein, albeit one with all of the modern amenities and features that had been introduced in the time following Choplifter's 1982 original release date. More specifically, Hawkins wanted the game to take advantage of the new console technology that was on the horizon, most prominently the 16 bit Sega Genesis console that was on the verge of being released. Hawkins believed that a modernized version of a game like Choplifter would appeal to a wide variety of gamers, and if Posen could take the fundamental gameplay and enhance it based on 16 bit technology, there was a strong chance that they would have a hit on their hands. Though at this point, We should probably take a step back and talk about Choplifter itself, since it was an incredibly influential game for the time in which it was released. Choplifter was developed by a man named Dan Gorlin over a period of six months and would be released as a cinematic helicopter hostage rescue mission kind of experience. Originally conceived as a three-dimensional helicopter simulation, Gorlin would end up making a number of changes before the title would be released to the public. For one, trying to create a three-dimensional experience in 1982 was prohibitively difficult given the technology available at the time, so he instead decided to focus on a side-view perspective, similar to the classic arcade title Defender. Secondly, the act of actually piloting the helicopter in the game was just a bit too simulation-centric for the general game-playing population. So Gorlin spent time working with the game's eventual publisher, Broderbund, to refine the flight mechanics while at the same time adding in additional action-styled elements like enemy tanks and planes, as well as hostages to be rescued. The end result was a title that was critically acclaimed and commercially successful, so much so that a number of more graphically advanced remakes and sequels would be made for various gaming platforms in the years that would follow. Choplifter would also serve as inspiration for a number of future game developers, including Jordan Mechner, who actually considered Dan Gorlin to be one of his heroes, at least in the realm of computer game development. We talked about this a bit during our episode on Karatika, but Mechner looked at Choplifter as one of the first games that transcended being a simple arcade experience, and instead added in a degree of cinematic flair. When you played Choplifter, you weren't just trying to get a high score. You were attempting to rescue hostages, which added a sense of real-world weight to the gameplay. Gorlin himself tried to accentuate the fact that Choplifter was meant to be a more of a cinematic experience as opposed to a simple arcade title, even going so far as to eschew the traditional game-over screen that accompanied nearly every video game up to that point. Instead, when a player completed his or her mission, success or failure, they were met with a screen that said, The End. I know that sounds like a minor semantic shift, but it was enough to make people feel like the game had a much deeper story, so to speak, than other games of the time. Now, I do feel the need to mention that while Choplifter was certainly more cinematic than many games of the time, if you play it today, you'll very clearly see that it is still an arcade-styled simple title. Sure, you may not be competing for a high score per se, but you still have a certain number of hostages available for saving in your mission, and your goal, while not explicitly stated as such, is to rescue as many hostages as possible. The only longevity in the title is improving your own skill over time to increase your hostage rescue rate, and while that gameplay loop is strangely addicting, it is not necessarily a super deep experience by today's standards. It's not like you had a bunch of different missions with varying objectives to complete. You effectively have a single static map every single time you played the game, and two enemy types trying to prevent you from succeeding in your rescue mission. That is pretty much all there was to the game. I don't mean to suggest, though, that there's anything wrong with the game as designed. And the fact is, for the early 80s, Choplifter was revolutionary i recently played it myself and i can say from personal experience that the game is fun to mess around with and if you feel so inclined to continue to improve your skills you can get a pretty good amount of gameplay out of it i'm simply suggesting that the depth of the experience is relative to the time period in which it was originally released i mention all this to provide some context around the request trip hawkins made to mike posen when posen sat down to begin developing his new game All he had in terms of inspiration was the 1982 version of Choplifter, and considering he wasn't himself an avid gamer, he didn't have a large number of other game experiences to draw upon. So, Persen effectively started with a blank slate as he set off to create his brand new helicopter rescue action title, known at the time as Beirut Breakout. As we've talked about before, Posen is more of a technology guy, not necessarily a designer, which is why the very first thing he tackled as he began working on Beirut Breakout was the creation of the game's engine. Posen looked at Choplifter and surmised very early on that the core gameplay loop wasn't really focused on story or narrative. It was really about the act of flying the helicopter itself, which he thought was fun and engaging. Because of that, His early prototypes for the game were focused simply on the act of flying around and blowing stuff up, with smoothly animated three-dimensional, so to speak, vehicles and enemies maneuvering around a large battlefield, played from an isometric perspective. There were no goals for the player to accomplish. There were no missions to complete. There was no score to accumulate. There was simply the act of flying around a military-styled sandbox, blowing up other things inside the game world. While that concept honestly sounds pretty darn fun, the fact is a purely sandbox helicopter experience might have been just a bit too freeform for an early Sega Genesis title, and it wasn't clear that an experience without any appreciable direction would appeal to many gamers. So Electronic Arts decided to assign another individual, John Manley, to the project. Manley would be responsible for bringing more traditional game design elements to the game, while Posen and Granite Bay Software would continue to work on the technology. Manly would begin coming up with a structure for how to turn a sandbox into a full-fledged game. Before we get to that though, let's take a look at some of the more technical aspects of the game. Like I had mentioned, Beirut Breakout was designed to utilize three-dimensional visuals presented via an isometric perspective, which for those who may need a refresher, is effectively an angled, tops-down kind of view, similar to what you might see in many action role-playing games like Diablo. For Beirut Breakout, Posen wanted to utilize three-dimensional models for every vehicle and object in the game, so he enlisted the help of a friend, Tim Calvin, to begin developing the 3D models for the game. Now the thing is, the concept of 3D in games around this time, especially on a console like the Sega Genesis, was just not truly feasible. Meaning, the Sega Genesis and other consoles of the time just were not powerful enough to represent three-dimensional models in their games. What consoles of the time could do, though, is display a number of sprites on the screen, since gaming systems had been doing that for years, and they were pretty darn good at it. So, Prosen devised a clever graphics programming trick. Rather than implement an actual three-dimensional world with real 3D objects in the game, he would instead take rendered 3D models that Tim Calvin created and generate a number of sprites of those models from different angles, combining those sprites into a representation of each object in the game. Because the game's engine was designed with an isometric perspective, there was an immediate sense of depth to the game world, even though the reality is that the graphics were simply designed to create the illusion of depth. And because each object in the game had sprites representing views from various angles, Posen was able to program vehicles and objects to rotate in the game world, with an appropriate visual perspective maintained regardless of the angle the object may have been facing. He simply swapped in the appropriate sprites depending on which way an object was facing. In this way, he was able to create the feeling of a three-dimensional world within the confines of a system that really only had two-dimensional graphics processing capabilities. However, that was not the only difficulty Prosen faced in displaying graphics on the Sega Genesis. Sure, he had solved the problem of how to make the game feel like a 3D world, but actually displaying the appropriate level of detail in that game world would prove to be a challenge. The issue was that the Sega Genesis had very limited display capabilities, as it was only capable of generating graphics at a resolution of 320 by 240 pixels. Any longtime gamers likely recognize that a resolution of 320x240 was pretty much a standard around the early 90s, and even many computer games would utilize similar resolutions for years to come. For Prosen, though, who wasn't familiar with game development prior to working on this title, the resolution felt incredibly restrictive. So he had to come up with a way of optimizing the graphics so that players could see the appropriate amount of detail in the game's sprites, while still providing enough visibility of the game world to create the sense that you would be flying over a large battlefield. Getting the camera just right would take a significant amount of time, but eventually, Posen ended up creating his own camera subroutine that was designed to follow the player's helicopter with subtle rotation and momentum-driven physics. These physics were then refined and added to the helicopter's motion itself, resulting in an experience where the game's camera and helicopter moved smoothly as a player navigated a given scene. The interesting thing here is, Posen actively worked to avoid using real helicopter physics when designing the game, which sounds a little bit odd, but let me explain what I mean. Whenever someone sits down to begin creating an experience that has its basis in reality, there's usually a question of how realistic to make the experience. Many times, armchair developers might assume that making something as realistic as possible is the best approach, which for a game like Beirut Breakout would mean recreating the feel of actually piloting a helicopter. The issue is, real helicopter physics just don't feel like what most people assume real helicopter physics are. So if someone were to sit down to play a game based on simulated helicopter motion, it wouldn't feel all that good to play. So, Posen decided to create a physics engine that matched the perceived physics of helicopter flight, which he believed would be more enjoyable to players. This involved tweaking and refining the physics engine for both the camera and helicopter flight mechanics over several months, a significant amount of time to spend on a single aspect of the game, but something that he hoped would be worth it in the long run. So, the technical aspects of the game were coming together, but we have yet to talk about the more game design aspects of the title, which John Manley had been working on while Posen and his team were focused on the engine, graphics, and control mechanics. Manley envisioned a game where the player would be able to progress through a series of missions, each of which would contain subtasks that would provide the player with a degree of structure to the overall act of playing the game. Rather than present a purely sandbox type of environment, Manly would collaborate with Posen to create a structured sandbox kind of experience, where each mission's subtasks could technically be completed in any order, with the game reacting appropriately to the player's actions by either becoming more or less difficult and adjusting the enemy's behavior based on those actions. Hossein was adamant that typical game constructs like boss fights and power-ups just would not fit in the title, and he believed that maintaining a non-linear kind of experience was important in maintaining the player's engagement over the length of the game. Manly would relent, settling for the structured sandbox approach I just mentioned, while limiting power-ups to realistic, at least in-game, kinds of items, like weapon reload crates and fuel refill barrels. With the game's mechanics coming together, attention shifted to the game's overarching plot, which originally was intended to be based on the Lebanese Civil War, which is why the title of the game up to this point had been Beirut Breakout. The setting and background story for the game would evolve over time, with recent events in the Persian Gulf driving Manly and the team to rethink the game's narrative. With a relocation to the Middle East, the game's name of Beirut Breakout no longer made much sense, so it was decided to rechristen the title... As Desert Strike. Interestingly, despite the fact that the game ended up being developed right around the time the Gulf War was escalating, Manley maintains that the majority of the game's story was written well before Operation Desert Shield began. Apparently, Manley and Posen were sitting in the office working on the title when they noticed a breaking news story on the conflict in the Middle East. While the focus of their work may have been unintended and to a degree prophetic, The fact is that many people assumed Desert Strike was a game created in direct response to the Gulf War. Considering all of the info we have at our disposal is effectively secondhand knowledge, I have no way of knowing what's true or not. What I can say, though, is that the timing of the real-world Middle Eastern conflict made the development and release of Desert Strike feel as though it were linked to those wartime current events. It may not have been, but as many people say perception can sometimes become reality regardless desert strike would eventually release on the sega genesis in 1992 at which point it was met with universal critical and commercial success many critics praised the game's gameplay graphics and flight mechanics with several publications claiming it was one of if not the best shooter available on sega's relatively young 16-bit console There were some critics who claimed the game was made in bad taste, once again owing to that perception of being tied to the Gulf War, but even those critics couldn't deny that the game was well-designed with an interesting and engaging gameplay loop. Over time, Desert Strike would continue to garner the praise of gamers and critics alike, and in fact, it was so successful that it would, shortly after its release, become the highest-selling electronic arts title of all time. Of course, that record doesn't still stand, but it's a testament to the popularity and quality of the game that it was able to ascend to that position. A number of ports to various other home consoles and computer platforms would follow, and the game would result in several pseudo-sequels being developed over the following years, all affectionately known as the Strike series of games. Beyond Desert Strike, additional titles included Jungle Strike, urban strike, Soviet strike, and nuclear strike, all of which went on to evolve the base helicopter gameplay originally introduced in Desert Strike. While Mike Poussin would only be involved tangentially in the releases that followed his original creation, his influence was certainly felt throughout every single one of those titles. Posen and his company, Granite Bay Software, would remain active in the software development industry through 2022, though he would never return to create another game after Desert Strike. Most recently, Posen was responsible for creating a number of time-lapse photography plugins for popular graphics programs like the Adobe Creative Suite of Applications. Based on Granite Bay Software's current website, though, it appears that the company ceased operations in late 2022 due to negative economic performance. While I never used any of their graphic software, it is always unfortunate when a formerly successful company closes its doors. I certainly wish Prosen and the rest of his team success in whatever future endeavors they may pursue. Desert Strike remains an interesting piece of gaming history. Born out of an executive's desire to modernize a popular early computer game from 1982, the title would come to life through the concerted efforts of several talented people, all of whom were able to capture the collective attention and focus of gamers and critics alike. Even today, there are a number of individuals who have been petitioning for a modern day remake for the Strike series of titles, which goes to show just how impactful they were across a wide range of the gaming population. While it's unclear if we'll ever see a modern Strike game, the fact remains that Desert Strike, as the first release in the series, was the title that paved the way for every sequel that would follow. And it is one of those rare instances where the original stands as tall as its more technologically advanced sequels. It is, to put it simply, a game that deserves to be remembered. We are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play desert strike today versus when it was released over 30 years ago so the main premise in desert strike is that you are an ace helicopter pilot and you're called into action to help stop a middle eastern dictator hell-bent on mass destruction at its core Desert Strike is effectively an action shooter kind of experience, because most of what you're going to be doing in the game is moving around and shooting. However, to distill its description down to simply shooter doesn't adequately describe all of the different nuances that make the game a unique experience. The game is designed to allow players to progress through four distinct missions, each of which has a number of subtasks within them that need to be completed in order to move on to the next mission in the game. Some people might hear that the game only consists of four missions and assume that this would be a short, lightweight experience, but that would actually be entirely false. You see, each mission, like I mentioned, has a number of subtasks that need to be completed in order to successfully finish any given mission. These subtasks are fairly varied, and might include things like eliminating radar dishes to allow you to attack an enemy base, rescuing hostages, capturing enemy scientists, and destroying enemy buildings and structures. At the end of the day, each subtask really only takes on one of two forms— Either you're rescuing or capturing someone, which utilizes the same helicopter winch mechanic, or you're shooting and blowing something up. That might sound like it'd get dull after a while, but the fact is that even though the mechanics behind each subtask aren't all that varied, the reasoning and situation behind each subtask makes each action feel unique. Sure, blowing up a bunch of radar dishes is mechanically and effectively the same thing as blowing up a bunch of enemy bunkers, but the combination of the game's included mission briefings coupled with the graphics and environmental diversity makes it all feel distinct. Speaking of blowing up a bunch of stuff, you have three distinct weapons at your disposal, each of which has limited ammunition. Your loadout includes a standard mounted machine gun, which you get a ton of ammunition for, a more powerful and limited quantity Hydra Rocket, and then finally an ultra-powerful and very limited quantity Hellfire missile. Each of these ammunition types are useful in different situations, and as you play the game, you'll start to find certain obstacles and enemies that are best dispatched with one weapon over another. Plus, considering that your overall ammunition is limited in supply, the game almost takes on a little bit of a puzzle flavor as you try to figure out how to complete all of the mission subtasks you've been asked to complete without running out of ammunition when you might most need it. Do you decide to destroy an enemy vehicle in one hit with a Hellfire missile, or do you pepper it with three Hydra rockets instead? Maybe that Hellfire would be better used on an enemy base. Or maybe, if you clear out all of the enemies around the base, you can simply pepper the building with a hail of machine gun fire, which will take a long time to take down, but will also help to conserve your more powerful weapons. The decision is ultimately up to you, the player, and I thought the added strategy in choosing which weapons to use when was a nice addition to the game. Luckily, you do have the ability to require additional ammunition as you play the game, as there are different spots across each map where ammo crates will spawn, allowing you to pick them up. The act of picking up ammunition, as well as picking up anything else in the game world, like hostages or other items, is done using a traditional helicopter winch kind of system. What's interesting here, though, is that your ability to winch, as well as your general ability to shoot and maneuver your helicopter, is driven partly by your choice of co-pilot. When you begin the game, you get to choose from one of several co-pilots, each of whom have their own skill rankings that will either help or hinder your ability to play various aspects of the game. If you value a fast winch, choose the co-pilot with the higher skill in that category, though that might mean that your shots are less accurate. This is another added layer of strategy that is another addition that I thought was a nice touch, though from my perspective, I don't think your co-pilot is really going to make or break your playthrough. It's more of a stylistic thing, so I would just pick someone you think will complement your playstyle and have at it. As you play the game, not only will you have to manage your ammo, but you'll also have to deal with a constantly depleting fuel supply, as well as armor that will dwindle as you get attacked by a variety of enemy firepower. Scattered across each game world, similar to ammo crates, are fuel barrels and armor packs, each of which will replenish your fuel and armor supplies, respectively. There are also a couple of other items that you can winch up from your helicopter, such as extra lives, which, by the way, can be incredibly useful, and a winch power-up that makes your winch super fast. So... You're managing all of these different resources between your ammo, armor, and fuel, and as you're managing those resources, you also have to, you know, play the game, which involves maneuvering your helicopter around a fairly large isometric battlefield and taking on a variety of enemy forces, including on-foot troops, rocket launcher enemies, assault vehicles, tanks, enemy helicopters, and incredibly powerful missile launchers. Each enemy weapon deals different amounts of damage to your helicopter, with some, like enemy foot soldiers, basically nicking your paint job, while other weapons, like the missile launchers attached to certain vehicles, absolutely wrecking you. Here's the interesting thing about enemy damage, though. You can, in certain instances, either make the game easier or harder for yourself, depending on how you intend to play the game. A few minutes ago, I mentioned the general structure of missions in the game, where in any single mission, you have a number of subtasks that you have to complete in order to ultimately progress further in the game. These subtasks, unlike many games, are actually able to be completed in any order, so I kind of fibbed a little bit. You can complete them in any order, and that does provide some degree of player freedom. And as you look across each mission's map, you'll notice that you basically have to pass some later subtasks in order to get to earlier subtasks in the subtask list. So you might think, no problem, I'll just take care of subtask six while I'm on my way to subtask two. Only in many instances, that is going to open yourself up to a world of hurt. Because even though you can technically complete mission subtasks in any order, a lot of the time, skipping those early subtasks makes later subtasks much more difficult. And here, I'll give you an example of why that is or how that is you may be tasked with taking out a series of radar dishes followed by assaulting an enemy power plant let's say you perform your subtasks in order you take out the radar dishes and proceed to the power plant you encounter some tough but manageable enemy defenses complete your tasks and continue on with your mission now however let's say you decide to go out of order and you go to the power plant before destroying those radar dishes when you arrive at the power plant you may encounter the same number of enemies but each of them are buffed ridiculously and can pretty much destroy your helicopter in a couple of hits. Encountering such a difficulty spike might be frustrating for those who may not recognize this nuance in the game's design, as it was for me when I first started playing the game. I just assumed that as long as I completed all tasks in a mission, I would be fine. Not so, as I quickly learned. The difficulty jump for not completing prior subtasks is significant. So I recommend, wherever possible, you tackle those subtasks in order, which makes the game difficulty curve seem much smoother. Also to note, later missions will have subtasks hidden until you complete the prior task, effectively forcing you to complete your mission in order. Even that, though, isn't 100% true, as you can complete subtasks that are still listed as unknown on your mission list. It's just that the game won't tell you what that subtask is. You can still get credit for its completion though, so no real issue there, just something to mention for awareness. I also should mention that even if you complete your mission subtasks in order, minimizing the potential for a difficulty spike, the game is still pretty challenging, and you will almost certainly die. I can also guarantee that there will be times when you fail a mission entirely, either by losing all of your lives or failing to complete some subtasks successfully, which means you have to start all the way back at the beginning of whatever mission you're on there is a password system in the game so long as you complete a mission in its entirety you don't need to restart the game entirely because of that password system but that being said some of these missions can be pretty long and especially in the last two missions the real difficulty only comes near the end of your subtask list after you've already spent a good chunk of time clearing out the easier subtasks Failing late in a mission can be a bit irritating, simply because of the time investment needed to get back to that failure spot, coupled with the fact that you may still be unsuccessful, which means you may need to restart the mission yet again. For me, it was really only the last two missions that posed any degree of real difficulty, and I probably ended up restarting each a good 7-10 times before I would eventually beat them. The last mission, however is really long so those failures in particular hurt a bunch anyway assuming you persevere and dedicate some time to learning the game you will eventually prevail and you will likely feel like a super helicopter ace when you do by the way before we move on i should mention that for this particular playthrough i ended up playing the sega genesis version of the title which was the original version that mike Poussin and the team created When I was younger, I owned the game on the Super Nintendo, so this is actually my first experience with the Sega Genesis version of the game. Overall, I didn't notice many differences between the two titles, at least based on my recollection of the Super NES port. The only major difference, which ultimately wasn't a dramatically huge deal, is the fact that the Super Nintendo controller had shoulder buttons, which you could use to hover side to side while maneuvering your helicopter. The Sega Genesis version, by contrast, did not have shoulder buttons on its controller, so to accomplish the same kind of maneuvering, you have to hold down the A button while you fly side to side. The issue with that, however, is that the A button is the same button that you use to launch your Hellfire missiles, which means that I didn't really end up using that movement scheme during my playthrough, other than just to try it out. It just felt a bit awkward to me, especially in comparison to the controls for the Super Nintendo version of the title not a showstopper by any stretch of the imagination but just something to keep in mind before we move on to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game i do want to take a look at what the back of the box says because as you all know I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I love learning how different companies marketed their titles, how they tried to gain attention for their titles when people were in stores, because back then we didn't really have the internet. Well, we certainly didn't have the internet to look up gameplay videos. We didn't always have a bunch of reviews and magazines. A lot of times when we made a buying decision, we made that decision based on what the box looked like in the store as we were literally standing in front of it. If it looked cool and if the back of the box made it seem interesting, we bought the game. Otherwise, we did not. So the box design and the back of the box in particular is an incredibly important piece of the overall sales strategy for a title. Anyway, for a desert strike on the Sega Genesis, the back of the box says the Scuds are back. With a fiery blast from your Hellfire missiles, you must annihilate a ruthless tyrant's military arsenal, smoke his private yacht, and tear into his air force as you challenge the madman's forces in a series of surgical strikes. Rip through 27 fiery missions. Force is highly recommended. And then there are four screenshots with some captions. They are, the madman's got his finger on the scud trigger. Annihilate his Scud launchers before their deadly cargo wreaks havoc on the Western world. Spearhead a rescue assault mission into Embassy City and break out American hostages being used as human shields. Battle the madman's military machine over land, air, and sea. One well-placed hellfire could send the tyrant down with his ship. Check out the onboard computer battle maps and satellite data for locations of enemy MiGs, Scuds, and dug-in tank encampments. And then finally, massive intro and end sequences pay off your victories with full-screen graphics. So that was the back of the box for Desert Strike. And I gotta say, it looks pretty darn good, and certainly really good for a game from 1992. Like I said, I did buy this game on the Super Nintendo. I did not look at the Super Nintendo box to see if it sold me on it. I gotta believe it's probably very similar to what the genesis version had it is pretty darn effective at selling the game and making it sound like an interesting experience that anybody who has an interest in helicopters or really action would want to take a look at we're now going to move on to talk about the more specific aspects of the game we're going to start by talking about the graphics desert strikes graphics are surprisingly good and though nobody would ever look at the graphics and think that they look realistic by today's standards I can say that when I first saw Desert Strike in the early 90s, the game did in fact look pretty darn real. The environments in particular were very well designed, with nice detail across the entire battlefield, from the backgrounds to the buildings to the enemy vehicles. Everything looked great even today, although rather than appear realistic, today I'd refer to the graphics as really high quality pixel art. I was particularly impressed by the isometric perspective, and the way that the sprites used in the game really did convey a feeling that the entire game was taking place in a three-dimensional world. We talked about how Mike Posen and the team accomplished that illusion earlier, but even knowing how the magic trick was performed doesn't diminish its impact. Desert Strike simply looked great. I was also impressed by the quality of the digitized images used during the game's cutscenes, which from my perspective, once again, approached realism, or at least as close to realism as a Sega Genesis cartridge from 1992 could get. The quality of the graphics is particularly impressive when you consider that the entirety of Desert Strike is stored on a one megabyte cartridge, or eight megabits, if you're so inclined to label storage the way many video game companies did in the 90s. And by the way, almost every single ounce of storage was used. I read in an interview with Mike Prosen where he said that all but eight bytes on the cartridge were used, and even then, he had to develop specific storage compression algorithms to get it all to work. To put it into perspective, this podcast episode will probably be somewhere around 70 megabytes in size. We'd be able to fit 70 Desert Strikes into this single audio file, which to me is just a little bit crazy. Anyway, my apologies for the tangent. Bottom line, Desert Strike looks really good from my perspective. Moving on to the sound and music, you know, interestingly, the majority of the game is actually played entirely without music, and the only spots in the game where you hear any sort of musical background is during the cutscenes that precede any mission, as well as the ending screen following each mission. Otherwise, all you're left with is the sound effects at play, which for Desert Strike means the constant whirring of your rotor blades, the unfurling of your winch, the rat-a-tat-tat of your machine gun, and the explosions of your missiles, in addition to various warning sensors that go off at different points, like if you're running low on fuel or you enter into a dangerous area where enemies are well entrenched. And I've got to say, this 100% worked for me. The lack of music added a degree of tension and drama to the action that I thought really elevated the game. I felt like a helicopter pilot in a war-torn country, and the sound design for all of the effects in the game were remarkably well done. I honestly didn't even miss the lack of music, though when it did play during the cutscenes, it was okay. I don't know, the music just felt really generic to me. And I think that if they had used similar style music playing during the actual missions, it would have likely detracted from the experience as it stands. The game's sound design was awesome. And the choice to not play music during missions was absolutely the right decision from my perspective. Definitely a home run for me, but like I said, the music that is in the game, eh, kind of a miss moving on to the narrative and story in desert strike. You play as an ace helicopter pilot who is deployed to the Persian Gulf region due to escalating tensions and, more directly, the actions of a madman by the name of Kilbaba, known as General Kilbaba in the game. Through a series of offensive actions, Kilbaba has proclaimed himself dictator of the region and is beginning to amass a large number of military weapons and technology, including the development of nuclear weapons. This poses a significant risk, not just to the region, but to the world at large. So the United States sends you in a lone helicopter pilot and co-pilot team to destroy enemy fortifications, rescue hostages, and ultimately put a stop to the madman's plans once and for all. Okay, let me get this out of the way up front. Yes, this is a fictionalized story, and I know John Manley claimed that most of the story was written before the whole Gulf War conflict really escalated in the early 90s. But there is more than a passing similarity to certain real-life situations and individuals, especially when you look at some of the digitized cutscenes that appear in between missions. It's hard not to assume that Desert Strike was, at least in part, retrofitted from its original Beirut breakout idea to take advantage, at least to a degree, of the real-world conflict that was playing out while the game was being developed. I'm not judging, I'm simply saying there are a lot of similarities here. Putting that aside, the story is pretty straightforward without any real plot twists or anything like that, but for me, within the context of the game, it worked. The story provides just enough motivation to make you want to play the game and progress through its missions, and the various cutscenes that play out throughout the game, while simple, are effective in setting the stage for why you're doing what you're doing. It's not going to win any awards, but in a game that's primarily about the gameplay, any extra story is a nice added touch, so I really don't have any complaints here. The story is exactly what it needs to be, given the context of the game. Moving on to the playability and controls, we talked a little bit about the control scheme already, but effectively, you move your helicopter using your directional pad with the A, B, and C buttons, each representing a different weapon type at your disposal. The controls here are pretty simple, though like I mentioned earlier, the lack of additional buttons on the original Sega Genesis controllers makes the act of moving side to side more cumbersome than it needs to be, and can occasionally result in you accidentally firing and wasting one of your highest powered missiles. I was able to get through the game without using this particular mechanic much, if at all, mainly because I felt like I was at a disadvantage when I tried to use it though I did feel like there were certain sections where it would have been absolutely helpful to maneuver side to side while continuing on your current flight path. The Super Nintendo version allows for this kind of maneuvering much easier with its controller shoulder buttons, and I've read some people who say that to truly master the game, you need to get used to this kind of movement. I don't deny that claim, but I can also say it's not entirely needed to actually beat the game. Other than that one foible with the Genesis control scheme, the game controls great, with the act of firing your weapons feeling satisfying. The star of the show, from my perspective, though, is maneuvering your helicopter around the battlefield, which I have to say simply feels awesome. There is a slight learning curve as you get used to the momentum-based physics, the best way to turn and adjust your flight path, and how best to sneak up on and occasionally avoid enemies before they can target you, but once you get that down, you will feel like you just graduated from the helicopter equivalent of Top Gun school. There were many moments where I would zoom across the desert, swooping in to pick up a hostage as enemies began to surround me. As my ladder descended, I spun my helicopter around to face the enemy vehicle and began to fire a volley of missiles, hitting and destroying them in the process. As soon as the hostage I was rescuing grabbed the ladder, I'd take off in the direction of the destroyed vehicle. My path now cleared, accelerating away from the converging enemy forces and luckily surviving to fight another day. And I gotta say that this kind of situation that marries a bit of strategy with gameplay mechanics happens a good portion of your playtime with the game, and for me, it simply felt amazing. I should also probably mention a couple of additional mechanics that we didn't cover earlier since they do impact how it feels to play the game. Like I mentioned before, your helicopter has armor that over time will be depleted by enemy fire. You can replenish that armor in one of two ways. Either find an armor pack, which is somewhat rare, or pick up and return hostages to a nearby extraction zone. For every hostage you save, you receive a small replenishment to your armor, which is helpful. You can only carry a certain number of hostages on your helicopter at any point in time, though. So when to return your rescued hostages to the extraction zone versus saving them for later in the mission when you might have some damage that you need to recover is something that you'll need to balance. The other mechanic that I should mention is the sheer destructibility of the environment. In short, if you see a building or vehicle or pretty much anything human-made, there's a good chance you can destroy it. Sometimes that means destroying a building in its entirety if, for example, it's a small single-story structure, but other times it means putting a sizable hole in the structure, effectively making it unusable. The interesting thing here. Is that many of the smaller buildings you can destroy might be hiding some sort of beneficial item like fuel barrels or ammo crates so it behooves you to destroy as much as you can while you play the game but you can't go totally wild here as you do need to balance your current resources to make sure you don't waste ammo and fuel on buildings that ultimately have nothing for what it's worth every fuel barrel ammo crate, and other item that you can pick up shows on your map, which you can access while playing the game to figure out where certain targets are. But those items only appear if you've already uncovered them. While there are a good portion of these kinds of items available in the open world whenever you start a mission, there's also a large number that are hidden and will therefore not appear on your map until after you blow up the building that might be concealing those items. You have to be careful though, because each of these items can also be destroyed by an inadvertent missile blast, which can sometimes be the difference between losing a life and saving the day. And I do have to say, the later missions make it fairly challenging to manage your resources effectively. So it really does behoove you to seek out hidden caches of items whenever possible. As you might be noticing, there are a ton of different intersecting and interesting gameplay mechanics at play in the game and they all come together to create an experience that remains easy to pick up and play even today. Beating the game, and even in some instances simply progressing through missions, will take some practice, but it shouldn't take long for anyone to pick up the gist of the overall gameplay loop. It's definitely more accessible than many games from the early 90s, and I thought everything worked really well. So overall, how did Desert Strike feel to play? Honestly, It simply felt amazing to play, and even after beating the game, I was left wanting more. The flight mechanics are addicting, and I'd argue probably the best part of the game, while the weapons and combat all felt satisfying to use. There are a couple of rough edges, like enemies with impossibly good aim, or certain situations where you are really outgunned that may require more of a stealth approach, which in this game really only means inching your position forward until you can see the beginning of an enemy vehicle without them seeing you, which can be a bit of an immersion breaker. But I can't really fault the game here, as there are even modern titles today that don't do enemy player detection all that well. For what it's worth, Desert Strike is as good in many regards as more modern titles with a similar gameplay structure. It's simpler, sure, but it's definitely high quality. Overall, I don't have much to complain about. This was one fun and well-designed experience. So what is our verdict? Where does Desert Strike sit in the overall video and computer game historical spectrum? Well, going into this episode... I was kind of assuming Desert Strike would be right in that golden oldie sweet spot because I remembered playing the game when I was younger and I thought I had a pretty good recollection of what I'd be getting into when I sat down to play the game. And I will say most of my recollection was pretty spot on. That being said, I actually think Desert Strike is better than I remember it, which I can only assume is a result of me never playing the game enough as a kid to get really proficient at it. Playing through it recently, I did in fact spend a good amount of time playing it, and I can affirmatively say that Desert Strike is a high-quality, engaging, and incredibly fun experience, and it is a game that I think everyone should spend some time playing. I honestly enjoyed it more than I thought I would given my prior experience with the title, and every moment I spent playing it was time well spent, even with some of the occasional frustration that would result by having to restart a mission after getting oh so close to beating it. Therefore, for me, Desert Strike absolutely deserves to be the newest inductee in our pantheon of classic gaming. It is honestly a really good game, and I encourage everyone out there to give it a try. I also 100% agree with those individuals who continue to push for a remake, or perhaps just a new release, in the Strike line of games. Consider me a convert. This is something I absolutely want more of, and I can only imagine how awesome a modern remake of the game would be, assuming a quality studio had a chance to work on it. Whether we eventually get a remake or not, the fact is, Desert Strike in its original incarnation remains an amazing experience, and as such, deserves its spot in our pantheon of classic gaming. That was our episode focused on Desert Strike. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at Classic T, and I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is probably the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We do a ton of fun things out there. So if you really want to get more engaged, I encourage you to join our Discord. I also want to mention that we do have a Patreon. That is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. If you want even more classic gaming today goodness, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Day of the Tentacle. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services. And if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. This is not about trying to harvest a bunch of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is getting the feedback necessary to make sure that I can make this the best possible podcast it can be. The only way to do that is to get feedback from all of the listeners out there to make sure that this is hitting the mark for what you want to listen to. We get new listeners every single day, which is awesome. I want to continue to focus to make sure that I am making this the best podcast that I possibly can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Day of the Tentacle, Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.